Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up, Diabetes Ireland got in contact with the show, concerned about soaring rates of type 2 diabetes over the last two years. But the pandemic stopped people from getting the diagnosis and the health advice they need. I'm going to be joined by dietitian Sinead Powell to get advice on how to spot the symptoms and implement lifestyle changes. Julie B is a yoga, well-being and mindfulness teacher. And today she'll be talking about leaving her job as a sales director in London to focus on a health and wellness career. And food writer and presenter Beverly Jarvis was at a dinner party when she told someone she was writing a book with recipes for teenagers and they suggested she do the same for someone more mature. Beverly, in her 70s, agreed. And today she joins me to talk about that very book, Eat Well, Age Well. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I seem to have turned a corner of sorts this week. I was struggling, I'm not going to lie. It's so hard to know what to attribute not feeling quite like yourself these days is. But I had a few of them. Busy days with work that I love. But I've been feeling quite lethargic. Um, One of the things could be being between homes and bridging the gap at my mum's. Gorgeous though it is. I've been harking back to times with my own space and my own stuff around me. But I have shifted perspective, not least because I know how lucky I am. But a down couple of weeks is a down couple of weeks. And sometimes you just have to take them as they come. January was quite go, go, go. And in February, I'm going to try and make time for a few more soul bits and pieces, as I call them. It's different to rest, which is equally important. But I'm going to be seeking out a few things that bring me joy And a few things that bring about some self-reflection. I've had one online event already and I woke up feeling fresher and more positive. So bring on the spring. I also hosted a couple of online health and wellness seminars this week. The topics were gender-based violence and what needs to happen to make Ireland a safer place for women. And on World Cancer Day, I was joined by three-time cancer survivor, author and mother of four, including triplets, Emma Campbell and Dr. Robert O'Connor, Director of Research at the Irish Cancer Society. Too tough, heavy subjects, but the conversations were enlightening and I think we really need to get comfortable with discussing the uncomfortable. We need to be open to sharing personal experience so we can learn and evoke change. And ultimately, I was left after the couple of days inspired and hopeful. And that also may have a lot to do with me turning a corner myself. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. It is estimated there are 234,398 people who live with type 2 diabetes in Ireland. Due to the significant burden placed on GPs and the healthcare system over the last couple of years of the pandemic, many have not had regular review appointments with their GP or their diabetes team. I'm joined in studio by senior dietitian with Diabetes Ireland, Sinead Powell. Hello, Sinead. How are you? Hi, Claire. So I, I, I start with all this negativity and this this doom and gloom, but there is, is hope at the end of all this. But can we go back to what type 2 diabetes is? Yes. Uh, so as you said, there's a growing number of people with diabetes in Ireland. Type 2, largely linked to lifestyle. And you said already, you know, it doesn't have to be a negative message. It can be a positive message. We know that you can prevent it by up to somewhere between 60 and 70%. Um, and once you're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, it's a manageable condition. There's a lot of work and a lot of understanding to it, but it can be turning the complications into a prevention piece. 
And do you think when we talk about lifestyle related that there's sort of a stigma involved in that? Because it sounds like there's blame involved, that it was your lifestyle that led to this. Is there any way we can change the perspective on that? I think that's really important and I think there is a big move towards destigmatizing weight and obesity and what it's linked to because we know that we're products of our environment. So it's trying to give a more positive message around understanding the condition and breaking it down into chunk size pieces where whether it be your sleep, your food, your activity, stress, meditation, mindfulness, anything that taps into, you know, living a better life and a better quality of life. And I think that's so important. I've worked in this area for over 20 years and how we talk to people and put them at the centre of something like type 2 diabetes really empowers them for change. Because we're all in the same boat, really, aren't we? We're all rushing around. We're all busy. We're all doing our best. And anybody can fall into a rut where they're not sleeping well. Mm -hmm. They're not eating as well as maybe they could. We all get to that point. So there's no blame involved. But what is going on in the body when type 2 diabetes comes as a diagnosis? So type 2 diabetes is a condition where there's too much glucose in your blood because your pancreas that makes hormone just isn't working properly. Um, And when we mentioned lifestyle, we know that as we age, um, the body doesn't work as well. So if you couple that with sedentary lifestyle and primarily obesity, so obesity, fat around the pancreas and the liver slows down how insulin works and is produced. And that then means that the glucose levels in the body rise. So I'm assuming you don't have diabetes and neither do I. So my blood glucose will be tightly regulated between four and seven. If I was to gain weight over the next 10 years and not be as active, what will happen is that my blood glucose levels can rise. But the important message here is I won't know. So my blood glucose levels could be 9, 10, 11, 12, and I feel exactly the same as I did 10 years ago. So the important thing is to understand more around the risks for type 2 diabetes, that you're being over the age of 40. Mentioned the lifestyle already. A family history of diabetes, blood pressure, cholesterol, and women that have had gestational diabetes. So what we say is if you're over 40 with any one of those, then get regular bloods done. You're better off knowing whether you've pre-diabetes or diabetes because then it's a case of what information do you need to make changes to better control your blood glucose, cholesterol and blood pressure in order to avoid complications associated with these high numbers. I think it's interesting you said that even though type 2 diabetes might be on its way or you might already have it, you'll still feel the same because that's not how we look at health. We wait for symptoms, we crisis manage and... If people had their energy levels were low, their mood was low, that might empower them to want to make change. But if you if you feel the same and we're still in that lifestyle where we drive to work because we want to be home in time to collect the kids and we sit at a computer because that's the, the job we have. And then we're busy ferrying the kids around so there isn't really time for us to get exercise and then we're throwing something quick into the oven. That how easy is it going to be to actually change that 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 lifestyle and turn it around? Well, that's I suppose every time I get on radio or television, this is the message I'm trying to say. So you know, it's a big prevention piece, and it's understanding the risks, but the fact that you can, you know, the biggest two you can change, so you can push type two diabetes 
right into, you know, your future, especially if those people that are pre-diabetes. So we know that simple changes doesn't mean that you have to have type 2 diabetes. And now we know that type 2 diabetes can go into remission. So I suppose it's to take stock and think new year, you know, hopefully we're coming out of a better year than the last two to think about the health changes that we can make that will protect our quality of life for the future. And that's why in Diabetes Ireland, we have uh, two online support programmes for people with type 2 diabetes. There's group education and there's this new Diabetes Smart programme, which aims to educate, but to get people thinking about the things that they can do to to, like I say, live a better life and to avoid type 2 diabetes in the future if they have pre-diabetes. And what is the worst case scenario if it goes unchecked? Okay, so we know that type 2 diabetes can cause, uh, you're four times more likely to have a heart attack or a stroke. Um, It's linked to, it's the leading cause of adult blindness in the Western world. It's linked to uh, kidney disease, chronic kidney disease. And 40% of people that are on kidney dialysis are linked to poorly controlled type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But here I'll say it again. You can have diabetes for up to 12 years and not know it. It's known as a silent condition, which is why I keep saying that, you know, it's important to know the risk factors to keep bloods in and well controlled. Because you don't having the, have the signs or symptoms until your blood glucose levels are elevated up around 14 or 15 millimoles. That's when you start feeling the symptoms of tiredness, of thirst, of going to the toilet. So it's really a case of a positive message, looking after yourself, because all of these things are preventable. Yet it's estimated about 10% of the health budget goes on managing type 2 complications and very little on what we're talking about now. And you know what fascinates me? I know you're saying it's silent and there aren't symptoms, but when your body isn't functioning the way it should, surely there is a, a an effect. But we're such an adaptable species that we tend to just go at a five out of ten and we don't realise that we could feel much better, that our energy levels could be higher, that our mood could be lifted yeah. by making some small changes. Can you talk about a couple of the small changes that you would suggest people make. Absolutely. But I'll just clarify just something you said there just about the signs and symptoms. So you do have signs and symptoms and even maybe just to say her type 1 diabetes where the body is no insulin at all, those symptoms will be felt quite, you know, prominently. Like yeah, the, the blood sugar the will drop. And, well, no, that, that's a low, but the high. So it's when your blood glucose goes above 15, you will have the signs and symptoms. But our blood glucose levels are somewhere between 4 and 7. So that space in between 7, 8 and 12, 13 you feel you don't really you might feel a bit sluggish so so there's a bit of a difference there but again if you want to understand uh, highs and lows visit diabetes.ie for a lot more uh, explanation on that so the simple changes then um, and if you go onto our homepage uh, the Diabetes Smart Programme what I've found is through a lot of experience when people are told they they have type 2 diabetes, they want information in different ways. They've just been told they have a long-term chronic condition. And an awful lot of times people will say they don't re- hear one single word the doctor says after that because it's such a huge thing to take on board. And there's an awful lot of emotions tied up with that between the judgment, the denial, the how did I get this? So I think it's really important to to look at that first and to address, well, how do I feel and am I ready for change? So... We do group education courses, but this Diabetes Smart offers something different where you can log in from the comfort of your own home. There's lots of 
little videos. Um, there's case stories. And we know that people, when they're diagnosed with diabetes, don't want to feel alone. And that's the, one of the most rewarding things, I suppose, in the work that I do, where I facilitate group sessions. I'm like the person who gives information. But to see people recognising their own struggles with somebody else or what they find difficult or look, this is what I did. It can really empower them to make the change around self-management and goal setting. And that's what we're doing in the programmes. So we're talking about, look, making one activity and one food change at a time. And it's to develop a habit. So whether it be, and I usually encourage that they develop the activity habit first because a lot of the food changes can happen once you're engaged in a healthier lifestyle. And it's thinking about things like alcohol, portion size, uh, the top shelf foods, the, the, the sweet and sugary foods. But rather than thinking they have to make 10 changes at once, one small thing at a time and to adapt and create the habit and come back once, you know, they've you know, got into something, they 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 realise that this is something they can do for another four or six months. And that's something else that we find in our group education sessions. We give two hours, uh, quite intense uh, information over three weeks and we bring the group back at six months. And where they're really buoyant and ready for change after those three weeks, we find an awful lot of the times people have a struggle with sticking with behaviour change. So that's something that we in Diabetes Ireland are trying to look at now to give people more resources and tools so that, yeah, look, I know the information. I've got that. You, you know, you've given me that, but, you know, life happens. COVID happens. You know, uh, where am I when things don't work out so well? So people need more support six months and a year down the line. And I think it really comes down to mindset. Something that's really important to me on this show is sharing that our health and wellness that we introduce into our life should be because we want to do something positive and it shouldn't be coming from a negative place. So when we start with, I hate the way I look, I hate the way I feel, how have I got myself to this type 2 diabetes diagnosis and all this blame, that's very negative. And when they, as you say, start clearing out every sweet thing in the drawer and making themselves get up at five for a walk, two weeks in, who wants to live that life? Nobody. But if you start to introduce something that's nice. Like, do you know what? I'm going to meet a friend for a walk once a week. And all of a sudden you find you're enjoying that and then it becomes two. And then you change up your breakfast and you don't go for the easy sugary cereal. You set aside a bit of time to prepare stuff on a Sunday that's easy to reach for. Turn on a podcast, listen while you're making it. Make it be something you enjoy. I just don't think we talk about that enough, that it can be a really positive and empowering thing. And you mentioned COVID. And look at the things that we adapted to in the most stressful and horrendous of situations. I saw people around my estate walking from home, putting in a walk on their lunch break to manage stress. So we can adapt to all kinds of things and introduce all kinds of behaviours that we never thought we could before. Absolutely. And in Diabetes Ireland, we would have always had face to face sessions for our group education. So we put those online and we had ideas, you know, that maybe this isn't going to work, but we actually brought in a much younger cohort. We've never had so many people with, you know, type 2 diabetes in their 30s and 40s because now they're able to work from home and log on because they have more flexibility. And you know, the things and the stories that people now share online about new habits they create. And again, it's, I am a dietitian, but I, the first things I uh, take the opportunity to say is, please put it out of your head. It's not about sugar. It's about understanding carbohydrates. It's about understanding portions, but it's 
really about taking away that blame, enjoying food. You know, we want people to come back. We want people to know, right, look, this can be a positive story. We know that type 2 diabetes can be put into remission. I didn't know that 10 years ago. You know, the information that uh, has changed over the last 20 years when it comes to diabetes education and support has changed phenomenally. Uh, and, and for the betterment of, you know, the person with diabetes, because really they can be at the centre of this condition can progress, but I'm really in charge of it in comparison to a lot of other diagnoses where you're very much medically managed. So it is really about changing that mindset. And I've heard loads of times that people will say, you know, actually, and, and the first time you hear it, you think, great, that's so good for a group to hear. Getting diabetes was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it made me change my life. And, you know, their outlook changed because they had a health scare and they turned it into something that's positive. Now, there could be loads of people screaming at the radio going, I can't believe you're saying that. But it's it's really trying to drive home that this is or can be positive once you kind of can get into that space where you want to live a better quality of life. And look, Sinead, you're a dietitian, uh, so you're all about food and eating well. But assure us, you still have fun. You still enjoy your food. You still go out and meet friends. Absolutely. You still socialise. It doesn't all have to be restrictive and cruel, does it? No, no. Um, (laughs) I have four boys. I can assure you the amount of food that we go through in the house. And uh, no, our house is a normal house. Um, People can have assumptions that dietitians just eat organic food and prepare. I do. I, I mean, I love cooking. I think that's why I went into dietetics. I love cooking. I love good food. But there's a fair share of rubbish in the house now as well. But we're we're fairly active family. Um, I've just done dry January and I'm breaking out tomorrow and I can't wait. <laughs> so there has to be, you know, there has to be some positives in this. Uh, yeah. So yeah. it's. Yeah, it's all about balance and and thinking about nourishing yourself and doing something good for yourself. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming in. For more, you can go to diabetes.ie, Senior Dietitian with Diabetes Ireland, Sinead Powell. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Coming up after the break, food writer Beverly Jarvis on the difference between lifespan and health span. Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna. On News Talk. And food writer and presenter Beverly Jarvis was at a dinner party when she told someone she was writing a book with recipes for teenagers. They suggested she do the same for someone more mature. Beverly in her 70s agreed. And today she joins me to talk about that very book, Eat Well to Age Well. Hello, Beverly. How are you? Hello, Claire. I'm fine. Thank you. And the idea for this book came about at a dinner party. It did, yes. Um, About... Oh, it must be 18 months ago now. I went to friends for a dinner party and I sat next to a chap who, who actually was in PR at the time. And he kindly asked me what I was working on at the moment. And it happened to be a book for teenagers. And he said to me, why don't you write a book for our age group, Bev? Surely that's what really would sell well. And I thought about it. And the next day I started writing and eat well to age well is the result of that dinner party. Do you think people get nervous inviting a cookery writer and food writer to a dinner party, Beverly? Oh, Claire, they definitely do. It's the bane <laughs> of my life because I'm very happy if they produce baked beans on toast. But um, because of my career, they do get a bit twitchy. 
<laughs> you're just anyone's happy to be handed any meal that they didn't have to cook themselves aren't they and to and to share that's, food with friends that's the whole reason th- that's what it's all about much more than what you're actually going to eat yeah absolutely I'm sure you know you're you, that that's why you do what you do because you love food so you're never going to want to turn down or judge a friend who's invited you so let that exactly. go down let people hear that recorded and know that just invite Beverly and know that she will be happy did you have any reservations yeah. about writing about aging well? We do seem to have so many negative connotations to aging. Did yes, you have I any did, of that? But I wanted to make a very positive book, which I hope is what I've done, because I'm now 72, rising, th- I'm 73, and I'm fit and well, Claire. And I go to keep fit, I go walking, I enjoy having people around for coffee or a meal, and I just get on with living, which is great fun. So I want to stress the positive side of ageing, not the negative. Because you make a really interesting point about health span and lifespan, because obviously because of advancements, we're all living longer. So like you say, 70s aren't what they once were. So what is the difference between health span and lifespan? Lifespan is the the number of years you're going to live on this planet, which, as you say, are getting longer and longer. But your health span is the years that you are free to enjoy life without any serious problems such as heart disease, cancer, etc. So the difference is that we, we want to try and eat a healthy diet and particularly on things like fruit and vegetables, major on good food so that we have a more healthy health span or a longer health span. And what are your most important tips for ageing well? Well, one of them is to make some healthy swaps, which, I mean, I do all the time. I've done it since I was probably in my 30s. For instance, swap white rice, white bread, white flour, for whole grain varieties, Um, that's also pasta, couscous, all of it. Instead of using white rice, use brown rice. I know it takes a little longer to cook, but it's so much better for you. And also whole grain is full of fiber. And as we get older, our gut slows down a little bit when we digest food. So it's more important that we have lots of fiber to help things move through quickly. And quite a lot of the time when we, we talk about food, we forget about how it can make us feel. People often look at it purely, um, I want it to be for enjoyment, absolutely. But I think it's like dieting to lose weight and we forget about making the connection between what we eat and our energy levels, which are so important at any age. Absolutely. I mean, carbohydrates are the main energy food, the main fuel for the body. But there are two forms of carbohydrate. We've got fast releasing, such as sugar, white bread flour, what I've been talking about earlier, and also slow releasing carbohydrates, such as whole grains. So again, keep high wheat, oats, rye, whole grains, and vegetables, seeds, that sort of thing. And keep low white bread, cake, biscuits, um, all the noughties. Um, that is one of the food myths that carbohydrates are bad for you. And I suppose you've covered that. Are there any other food myths that annoy you? Um, well, yes, I think people, particularly perhaps older people, are very keen on butter. 
and um, maybe maybe they use lard in cooking. It's much, much better if you can swap hard fats for olive oil or rapeseed oil. Um, it's much, much better for your heart. Um, also salt. I stopped using salt years and years ago. 75% um, of the salt we consume actually comes from all sorts of processed foods. So think cheese, ham, canned food, or everything has salt in it. So less salt helps you lower your blood pressure and reduces water retention. It can even help you reduce headaches if you suffer from headaches. So in my opinion, when you're cooking vegetables, leave salt out and try to leave salt off the dinner table. You cover in your book some of the conditions or illnesses that are associated with ageing. So what nutrients would you suggest if we deal with a couple of them with arthritis? What nutrients would you suggest for people with arthritis? Well, arthritis is, is useful for me because um, I've suffered from osteoarthritis for years and osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis that seems to um, take place with people in this country. So I've had a major back surgery, actually. I've got six pins in my back, Claire. And how does so that I manifest been... itself, Beverly, osteoarthritis? Well... Very, very aching joints okay. and um, slows mobility or makes mobility more difficult. So what would I advise? Try and lose a little bit of weight if you're overweight to alleviate the pressure on your joints and eat healthily above all. So major on lots of healthy fruit and vegetables. Try and eat a rainbow of colours for both lunch and supper. Um, of course, you need to add protein and just a little carbohydrate, but lots of healthy um, vegetables will rarely help your arthritis. After the surgery, have things eased for you, Beverly? Yes, they definitely, they definitely have helped stabilise things, but I will always be a sufferer. I just have to get on with life. And I'm very, very keen on trying to exercise every day of the week. I try and do 10,000 steps, which I measure on my watch every day. Come rain or shine, Claire. It really does help. Doesn't sound like you let much stop you, to be honest with you, Beverly. What about dementia? Are there any nutrients you suggest for people with dementia? Dementia is something that terrifies me, Claire. Did you know, actually, that more than a quarter of your daily calorie consumption goes straight to your brain? So if you want to fill it with cakes and biscuits and crisps, um, you think that's all going to the brain. So for memory, I recommend avocados are wonderful. They've got healthy fats. Oily fish is such an important thing to, to have regularly. Dark green vegetables, beetroot, turmeric and celery are all really good foods to try and stop dementia or prevent it getting worse if, if you've started memory loss. And my dad had dementia, so I learned obviously a lot about it firsthand and, and, and also researched it a, a lot um, and did a carer's course. And they were explaining that with certain forms of, of dementia, food can become very confusing, that their vision is impaired in that when we see a plate, we can assess what we have to do. We have to cut the meat, we have to use the fork to or spoon to pick up the peas and we can assess that, whereas all that starts to, to break down. So it's a real shame that dementia can 
really confuse the the the, the food on the plate and, and and diminish the enjoyment from from food. That's really interesting. Yes, I wasn't actually aware of that, Claire. So all the more importance that whoever is helping with their diet make sure they do have healthy a healthy diet. My mum was telling me recently she heard an interview with a chef from a nursing home and a lot of the residents there uh, were struggling with food and she decided to try and make it look more palatable. So even though lots of it would be in a in a mashed or liquidized state, she was making the carrots look like a carrot and, and fashioning it back into that shape and other elaborate, inventive ways. And, and it really increased how people eat food. So I, I do think it's really important, even as people age and have different ailments, that we still try to treat their time with food as a time of, of enjoyment and, and taste and don't take that away from people if we don't have to. I think that's so important, desperately important. You know, we eat with our eyes. So even if your memory is impaired a little um, and perhaps your vision, you still can possibly pick out bright colours. So carrots, red peppers, peas, you know, they're, they're all vibrant in colour, aren't they? Which is so good for you to consume. Um, Something that can happen later in life is that you can lose some of the people close to you. Would you have any advice for somebody who may have lost their partner? Maybe they did most of the cooking. And so you're left lost in many ways, but in particular in the kitchen. If If later in life you're now starting to cook for yourself, possibly for the first time, do you have any tips? Yes, I do, because I know this does uh, occur quite regularly. And um, My sister is a prime example. She's 82 and lost her husband two years ago, and she absolutely hates cooking. But I would suggest that you look at the starter um, and light meal section at the, the beginning of the book, because there are lots of nice, re- very, very easy recipes. Um, I suggest that they start with, you know, simple things like scrambled eggs, perhaps cooked in the microwave. Mashed avocado on toast, if you spread the toast with Marmite, is a very nutritious lunch or supper. Baked beans on toast is great. And maybe you'd like to add a poached egg on top or serve it with some tuna fish and a salad for a really healthy, quick-to-prepare lunch or supper. Would you advise an older person to experiment with with new foods? I mean, we're starting simple there, beans on toast, scrambled egg on toast. Should they be going to a a tagine and, and really putting themselves out there? Absolutely. That That's why the book actually has over 75 recipes in it, Claire. Mostly are there to serve two people. But at the back, I've got some dinner party recipes to serve six. Um, and that, for instance, there I know there's a nice beef casserole recipe. Um, even if you have a day when you fancy cooking or even maybe maybe at the weekend, cook enough for six people, cool it and either put some in the refrigerator for the next day or batch freeze it down. So then you've got a ready meal in your freezer, ready to use, and you know exactly the nutrients that have gone into it. The book is called Eat Well to Age Well. Beverly Jarvis, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Claire. Bye bye. 
Coming up after the break, Julie B on how yoga helped her recover from trauma and is now her way of life and her career. Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Julie B was living in London and working as a sales director when a major life incident changed everything. Piecing her life back together led her to Bali, a yoga mat, and now she works full time as a yoga, mindfulness and wellness teacher. And she joins me in studio now. Hello, Julie. Hi, Claire. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. When I packaged it all together like that in an introduction, it all sounds like a fairy story with a start, (laughs) a middle, a struggle and an end. I'm sure it wasn't quite as linear. No, but it it does remind me of some of the the highlights um, of the last couple of years. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. Take us back to London and your time working there. Was yoga a part of your life then? It was, but only in a small way. So I found yoga just before I went um, to London, actually. And listen, I was not your typical yogi at all. Very sceptical about it. was kind of dragged to the mat. Um, But once I kind of started... I kind of got a bit hooked on it. Um, so when I was working in London, I was just doing it, you know, on the weekends or in the evenings. Um, and then kind of over time, it just kind of weaved its way in a little bit more into my life. And I kind of started to think about making it a bigger part, I suppose. Because I want to talk about yoga, because I think we, we sort of stick it in a box that it's just something you do sometimes or it's a particular type of person that does it and it's to go and be peaceful, that it's not a full workout like it gets. I mean, obviously, it's a glorified thing that so many people do, but it does get a bit of a bad rap. It does. And I have to be honest, Claire, like I was one of those people that was just like, yoga is just not for me. I mean, I can't sit still. I prefer to go to the gym and do a workout or go for a run. You know, if I'm taking the time to do something, I want like something high energy and almost to feel that kind of buzz afterwards. Like I've, I have worked out or I've done something. Um, so I definitely was in that kind of box. Um, but I suppose like I was literally dragged to the mat. And once I started it, I kind of just started to see that actually there's so many different types of yoga. And now, I suppose, in the position I'm in, you know, my kind of mission for this year is to just get as many people trying it, you know, just to to give it a go. Because like with anything, you know, it depends on the teacher. There's loads of different types of yoga. It depends on the class. And yeah, there's loads of yoga that's very calm, very peaceful, all about the breathing. But there's also a lot of yoga that's very challenging physically. And I think that's what draws me back all the time. And I think that's what's drawing so many more people now once they've tried it is it's kind of like this thing that gives you what you need when you need it. You know, I get onto the mat and sometimes I think I need to really, you know, power it out here and actually find myself moving quite slowly and just relaxing because that's what my body needs. So I truly believe really now if I can do it, anybody can do it. But I do really believe there's just something for everybody in it. I don't know. I was looking at your website in preparation <laughs> and I was looking at all the moves you were making. I don't know. But look, we'll talk but about that. But that's the glimpse, you know, like that's the, you know, you don't show all the bits I do on the mat. So that's that's for the website, you know. Yeah, you can contort your body in all <laughs> kinds of ways. We'll get to go now in a minute. Well, I suppose we don't need to be intimidated because no. any body shape, any size, any fitness level, it's yeah. just you and the mat, which sounds kind of intimidating on its own. Yeah. But it's just you. So you yeah. shouldn't feel like it's not something you can do. No, and listen, I've been that person as well going into yoga studios feeling so intimidated, like especially when the teacher starts calling out all these crazy names of poses and you, you just don't know what you're doing and you feel like, oh my God, I just need to get out of here and I can't wrap my leg behind my head. And that's not what it's about. And it actually took me a long time, even after I started practicing yoga, to really realize that. Like it was even after I had done my teacher training that I really came to realize actually there's so much more to yoga than 
all these crazy poses, you know, or, you know, what I can kind of twist my body into. Um, and it, but it is, you say, as you say, it is, a, it is a thing. Like people do get really intimidated by it. And I think there's an ownership on teachers and studios to make people feel comfortable. And that's what I try to do in my classes and in, you know, and kind of how I present myself and kind of engage with people from like private clients to kind of corporate clients or public classes, you know, whatever I'm doing, because I just want to break that down. Well, let's go back to London okay. because you were just like the rest of us hopping in and out of an odd class every now and then to yeah. take that kind of yoga box. And then you were at the victim of a very serious assault mm. from an ex-boyfriend. So yeah. That must have been a really dark, tough time trying to come to terms with all of that. Did you return to Ireland after that? Yeah, so um, it was a really challenging time and I came home to Ireland the next day after it happened Um just I think a flea like kind of an escape and um, my brother was over in London at the time thank God and he just kind of put me on a plane and I came home like went home to mum and dad and they just totally looked after me Um physically I was a bit of a mess emotionally mentally I was all over the place Um but I only stayed home for about two weeks and I went back I went back for legal reasons as well like I had to kind of get a restraining order on that kind of thing Um but that really yeah it shook me to my core Um and like to be honest I think when there is like a physical assault on you like it was something that it just challenged me on every level and I think broke me on every level as well to be honest so um, I felt very lost and very afraid returning to London but also determined to not let that kind of take me away from London and not let that be the reason I left you know and I just felt that even though I felt totally broken that I had to get myself back up and I had to work out how to get through it. And I, I'm sure you need a time to just retreat and find your bearings. Mm. How long before you started to make tentative steps to put yourself back together again, if that's even yeah. a, a way to describe it? Well, it was, so it had happened in the October and I was very, very lucky because I had to move out of my house um, because like he, there was a, he was kind of stalking me and stuff there. So I had to kind of move and stuff. So a lot had to change. And I was very, very lucky. A close family friends kind of took me in, like friends that I had worked with. I suppose I used to teach yoga for their family and they just kind of took me in. And that was a massive help because I felt like that gave me a grounding. Um, But I went to Bali in the March after that. So whatever, five months later. And I feel like that's when I started to piece things back together. Um. Before then, it was it was just chaos, really. Like, I was suffering quite badly with nightmares. I really wasn't sleeping. Um, I couldn't go to work. Um, there was the whole kind of legal proceeding. So it was a real muddle. Um, but I think, like, taking myself to Bali, and, like, listen, my mum went mad when I told her I was going to Bali on my own for, like, a month. But to be honest, Claire, I felt I had to do something. I was drowning, and I needed to kind of remove myself from the situation and as you kind of say like I know it sounds very fairy but find myself but genuinely I had to let myself feel the bad stuff and kind of get through the tough stuff and start to like kind of walk again and like physically really start to heal you know like I um I suppose it, it kind of just I found a building rather than getting better so by kind of taking myself away I kind of I don't know where it came from but I just did it and booked it and went and I was absolutely petrified. But the second I arrived in Bali, I just knew that this was going to change, you know, everything. And this was the start of me getting myself back. 
But had you already done your teacher training in yeah. yoga at that so point? When I, I actually started a funny way. So I did my pregnancy yoga teacher training and my mum and baby yoga teacher training in Dublin before I'd ever gone to London because I just was fascinated and I was I was always fascinated by birth and pregnancy. I just think it's amazing what the women women's bodies can do. But I was just fascinated to kind of look at how something like that might help and then that kind of, you know, that nice time connection with mum and baby. So I'd done that. And then I suppose it was probably... A year before that I had done my teacher training um, but kind of wasn't using it full time at all had a couple of private clients and was kind of dipping in and out of it um, I think it's all the fear to be honest Claire of leaving you know a well paid job um, you know doing all the kind of tick the box your career and kind of focusing on that like I was in London for that and the fear of stepping away from that and going into yoga and having to start all over again and you know you know, that kind of thing of, you know, I was, what age is I? I was kind of early 30s, I suppose. Yeah, it's about 30. So I was thinking like, I should be doing this and I should be here in my career. So that was all a bit too whimsy for me. I'm very organised. I'm a planner. Um, but I had the foundations there. Um, so my yoga, I suppose my yoga though around that time, Claire, was very much sitting on the mat. And that's where I found a depth to my practice. That's where I started to let myself sit still because I really didn't have a choice I went to yoga I went to classes but I couldn't move much at the start but I felt it just there was something about like there was just something safe about my mat so it started off in my house and then being able to go to a studio that was kind of the next step even if I wasn't moving much and then I went to Bali to do yoga so I went kind of to um to Ubud and um went to the yoga barn there and was doing yoga every day and trying all different types of yoga and saying bats and all these things I would never have done at home. Do you know, I just would have kind of been like, that's not for me. But I thought, you know what, I'm here. I have all day to do yoga. Why not do it? And it definitely was a real turning point for me, I, I think in every way, but definitely in, in my yoga journey. Well, you're listening to Live and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna and I'm talking to Julie B, who is a yoga mindfulness and wellness teacher about how she got to this being her job title. And I think so many of us find it difficult to sit still, um, to be in our heads. But then I suppose with yoga, you get out of your head and into your body. Mm. And I think all exercises that and we're starting to talk about that more and more. But it was certainly brave for you to to sit with everything that was going on. You could easily have just got straight back into your sales director role and pushed it all down but that wouldn't have really been the healthy way No and I think listen I tried it I did you know I mean I'd gone to therapy and I'd done what I thought like you know to do to kind of heal for me Um, but I did go back into a, a new role and I just felt there was something missing and like don't get me wrong as much as everybody else I find it so hard to sit still and be quiet and you know to sit with all the thoughts but I think what going through that taught me was the fear of feeling it was worse than actually feeling it. And I hold that with me. Um, You know, kind of the worry of, oh God, I, I don't want to sit still because what will bubble up is actually worse than just letting myself go through it. And I think I take that even now when there's times where I just feel overwhelmed and overloaded. I don't go to the mat and think I'm going to go and sit still and listen to all my thoughts at all. I use my physical practice to calm the mind not by telling myself I have to get calm, but by physically challenging my body. And before I know it, I'm a little calmer. Things are a little quieter. Things are a little clearer. And because I struggled so much with it and because I still find it so hard, that's why I do what I do, because I've seen the benefits. And, you know, I didn't have the choice with sitting still at the start because I physically couldn't do much. And by 
by kind of letting myself do that, I got so much from it and it wasn't easy. But now it's not easy to sit still, but, you know, I'm not going through the trauma. So I kind of let myself, kind of ease myself into it through my physical practice. And as you say, like that's kind of part of my kind of mantra is kind of getting out of your head and into your body. But the benefits you feel are so much more than just, oh, I'm a bit stronger. I can hold a plank longer or I can do that crazy pose. It's it's just a way of, it just, I suppose it just filters through your whole life. And I often find myself when I feel stressed or overwhelmed, just getting on the mat calms the mind without even telling myself I have to sit still or I have to breathe. You know, it's just that, okay, I made it. That's what I want to give to everybody else. And now you work a lot with with corporates, like you have your own classes, you have your one-on-one, you have mentoring and you go into corporate. So Mm. what is always your go-to wellness tip when you're giving these talks or you're getting involved? Yeah, I think it's, if I can do it, anybody can. And I think it's about trying it. You know, I often say to people, even if I'm doing sessions, you know, people ask me to go do meditation sessions or, you know, to do breathing techniques or to talk about, I've one coming up in a couple of weeks talking about self-love and self-acceptance. And it's a really difficult audience. Like, and I think for me, I'm just real about it. And I say, I really struggle with this. Like, it's not about flicking a switch. It's, there's no easy answer here. But, you know, if you're feeling stressed and anxious, why not try something or overwhelmed or whatever it is? Why not try something that might make a difference? And give it a go and, you know, just be open to something new. Um, because I just truly believe it's it's changing little things and making kind of conscious decisions, even in how we talk to ourselves. So if you're starting a session, a yoga session saying, God, this isn't for me. I just can't do this. This is not my buzz. Well, you're probably not going to be great. You know, whereas if you go into thinking, oh, I'm just going to try it. Well, actually, maybe you might get something out of it. And like me, you might be surprised by some little bit that you take away and maybe it is something physical maybe you feel a bit more space in your lower back or maybe actually you feel like oh god I feel a bit lighter I'm not worrying so much about that meeting I have coming up or whatever it is I just for me my message I suppose is there is something to be gained for everybody so maybe just give it a go and I know we've been talking about all the benefits to your mind and to your spirit but is it a good workout for the body is yoga enough for that person that still is like oh no I need to go and hammer it out yeah somewhere yeah yeah I think it's the type you do and I like a really strong practice um so I would absolutely say if you want that you will 100% get it from yoga um come to me sign up to my class no problem at all and we'll, we'll give you a challenge but I think it's around and I've no problem people doing that by the way like I've no bother with people saying to me I want a really strong class. I just want to work out. And I'm like, great, because that's how that's what brought me to the mat. And if that if someone gets that from if that's what they need and they get that from the practice, great. But I would say, you know, yoga, as you've seen, there's yoga studios everywhere, there's yoga teachers and classes everywhere. So it is kind of about finding the right class. So if you want a really strong workout, I wouldn't sign up to, you know, a meditation class because that's not going to float your boat. You know, that's not going to tick your box. So find a class. Don't be afraid to ask whatever teacher you kind of sign up to or studio. Say to them, I want a strong class. You know, what is it? And certainly for me, like, you know, I've had two babies in the last two years and I have found it really good for both you know, during my pregnancies, but also trying to get my body back, you know, building the strength and kind of getting back in some sort of shape. Um, So for me, it's my go-to workout as much as it is my kind of headspace. Oh, pregnancy yoga was one of my most favourite places. I used to think I'd <laughs> strap on a prosthetic just to sneak in because yeah. it was so, so such a nice. Bubble. Like, it's such a lovely 
bubble and it's just space to have like pregnant women together there's just something so special about it I love it I love teaching it actually and a way to get a stretch in get that you space. just yes, yeah, no, when everything is. is getting a little bit tight I would highly recommend if you have a bump to find a pregnancy yoga class and you could do a lot worse than checking out juliebwellness.com all our information is there and Julie would be at the Welltech World Summit in Dublin it's on March 21st to 23rd and tickets are available now at welltechworldsummit.com well keep shining Shining, Julie, look where you've where you've come from and what you've done and how you're spreading all of that positivity to everybody else. Oh, thank you so much. It's do you know what? It's actually the best learning from it. And I feel like if anything positive came from it, I've come to a place where I'm so much happier. And if I can just help a couple of people with that, my job is done. Julie B, thank you very much. Thank you. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer John Fardy, to Garrett Mulhall and to Simon Keane and to Jojo Cordoza who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week.